Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Episode 29. I'm your host, Eric Swain. With me now are the editors of Shooter. I am uh, Patrick Lindsay, freelance game critic and one of the two editors of Shooter. And I'm Reed McCarter, also, boringly, another freelance games writer and the co-editor of Shooter. Starting off, where did the collection idea for Shooter come from? What specifically caused you to come out and do this? I, I can go for it, Patrick. Yeah, dude, definitely. Because, I mean, you, you approached me about it, I remember. Yeah, like the basic idea was, you know, thinking about doing sort of longer form criticism. I was thinking about kind of doing it on my own. But then I was also thinking about the fact that there are so many great freelance writers out there, or just, you know, games writers in general. And one of the great things about, even though it can be hard to find a staff position somewhere, it's not hard to get people together to contribute to something. So I, the first thing was just reaching out to Patrick to see if someone else wanted to get involved with this from the get-go. And then, you know, the idea for a collection was always just to get as many different voices as possible on this. Yeah, that was one of the things that both Reed and I sort of emphasized mutually from the get-go is we both had background in games writing in general, but also writing about shooters specifically. But we also knew that there there were a ton of other writers who were either just getting started up or who had a lot of really interesting things to say that maybe didn't have a platform for it. And we're like, yeah, let's... Let's do that. Let's let's kill two birds with a single proverbial stone. Yeah, that's a better way of putting it, too. When I was kind of went around there saying that it's it's hard to get uh, steady work, but there there's no shortage of of talent you see just kind of popping up all over the place. So I don't know. A collection seems like a good way to take advantage of that. And why Shooter specifically as the focal point of the collection? It, part of it is just sort of personal preference. I definitely have not, if not an affinity for shooters, at least uh, a, a history with them in terms of just where I focus my writing. And the thing is, despite the fact that it's a very ostensibly simple style of game, there's actually, I think, both Reed and I think a lot that you can kind of get from that very basic sort of surface. So we thought it was a really great way to both explore a genre that we thought was interesting and also kind of open up a door for critical game writing, maybe hopefully on a scale that a lot of people hadn't really considered it before. Yeah. And I mean, just to add to that, it's pretty much exactly how I felt too. I just think that when you talk to people about video games, I think usually what they think about are shooters, you know, um, they're sort of of the big mainstream genres that garner a lot of attention that are kind of the biggest cultural touchstones. I think most of them are shooters, you know, mm-hmm. your Call of Duties and Doom and Quake, and there are a lot of shooters. But, you know, so it seems like a good place to start. And it also is kind of the biggest, loudest example of, of what people think of when they think of video games, you know, guns and explosions and blood and guts and everything. And, you know, it's kind of the, to me, it's kind of the, the perfect um, sort of touchstone genre if you want to do criticism that, kind of, you know, gives everyone a way into it pretty easily. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely, if you've heard of video games at all, you've, it's probably been in the context of some kind of shooter game, um, not necessarily in a positive light, in fact, usually in a negative light, which is also kind of secondary motivation for exploring this topic further. Um, your book comes pretty uh, on into the 
I guess, wave of publications we've been having. Did you take any inspiration from, like, the previous works that have come in this arena? Do you just mean by, do you mean books specifically, or kind of like independent magazines, like e-magazines? Let's say both, because that's what we're covering. Yeah, uh, I don't know, I'll... Let Patrick go in a second, but I think <laughs> <laughs> I think the big thing was there definitely was a feeling, and I think there's a certain thing for a lot of freelance writers, uh, games writers especially, right now, where the business is changing so much, so so quickly, and it's hard to find any kind of stability. And then uh, I think a lot of people started thinking around the same time of well it's easier than ever now to put things out independently on, on the internet. Um, so I, I think a lot of it started happening all at the same time, but there were definitely things like five out of 10, I think was a big, you know, sort of example of, look, you can do this. And it's kind of, you know, mm-hmm. they, they managed to put out a really beautiful magazine and, you know, the approach with having sort of a honed focus, but with each issue, but having, you know, an array of voices every time. So that, I don't know, and, and things like Killing is Harmless was sort of a big showing that, like, hey, look, at, there's space out there to, to go and do some ebook criticism, essentially. So that that stuff kind of, you know, it's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what mean, I got to say about that. <laughs> I, I mean, like, as a freelance writer, you obviously recognize the challenges that exist in the freelance space in terms of trying to find work. And I think Reed and I sort of simultaneously had the thought that, like, the, the type of critical writing that we do and that we're interested in doesn't necessarily have, if it doesn't have the brightest feature in the web space, then we can turn it into a publication. And the fact that there have been other things like 5 out of 10 or the arcade review are like the books like killing is harmless or the, the boss fight book stuff. Like that's been great because it's set precedent. Me personally, I've seen a lot of in terms of format, I've seen a lot of books before that take almost kind of like an extended let's play format where it's like, let's walk through a specific game kind of chapter by chapter and write about it, which definitely can be interesting from a critical perspective. But I think that the long form sort of book length format has a lot more to offer. So this was for me really a really exciting opportunity to kind of explore other perspectives that you could kind of take a dive at a broader subject. Yeah. And I mean, it's a great thing too. when you, when you get, I don't know, just books of essays by, you know, essentially, you know, non video game stuff, but just, uh, anthologies. I've always liked a lot, whether it's short story anthologies or, you know, essay anthologies. I like, I think there's something really interesting about getting a single contained book that you know has been curated, but every time you finish an essay, there's another interesting essay that's going to have a different tone, a uh, different feel to it. But unlike, say, Killing is Harmless or the other type of book that takes the sort of let's play route, which would be Alan Williamson's and Caitlin mm-hmm. Tremblay's book on Unreal, mm-hmm. you chose to focus said on a genre taking it from multiple different aspects, almost, I won't say every aspects, but a good number of them in directions. How did that all come together? Like, how did those choices be made? Because a genre is much grander than just trying to pull out everything you can from a single title. Yeah. Well, I mean, the 
Oh, I guess sorry. a better way of asking is, did you choose like how you wanted to explore it, or did you choose the writers first and then have what they wrote fit a structure later on? It was like Both? in a large part. Oh, sorry, Patrick. Go. No, I mean I was. I mean that's pretty much all I had to say. Both, pretty much. I mean, Reed and I had a basic idea of the sorts of things we wanted to say, but we sort of left it up to the writers who pitched to us to kind of determine what exactly that what exact lines that fell across. Yeah, and the idea, too, to an extent, was, you know, make this call for submissions, see what we got, see what kind of pitches we got. And, you know, there was always the option that if we felt like we had a certain aspect of the genre really well cornered and other things were lacking, then we could always reach out to people independently. But we also kind of wanted to just have, like, instead of just drawing from our own, you know, collection of, of people, two of us really like reading, open it up to see if there's anyone out there who saw the submission who just had a really cool pitch that maybe hadn't written that much about games before. So I don't know, it was in a lot of ways it was kind of a happy accident that we got so much to pick from. Mm-hmm. Um we got a lot of submissions. Yeah, which was kind of, you know, that's that was the scariest part I think of the entire thing was just because if that doesn't work, then you don't have a book, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. Especially because yeah. we, made, we made such a big deal out of the call for submissions post. We were really kind of hammering that in terms of the marketing, that this was a thing that was going to happen, so. Yeah. How'd you narrow it down to the 15 that ended up in there? Skype. That was like a three-hour <laughs> Skype conversation, I think. Yeah, it was like some exhaustive Skype conversation where we kind of, I think what we what did we do, Patrick? Didn't we both kind of make notes on our own? And then... We did, and then we compared notes. Basically, I mean, each of us had our own sort of specific process, but we we both kind of considered what games we thought would be important to represent in a book on shooters and also what perspectives and topics and points of view would be worth representing, and then we sort of kind of just let the submissions direct us from there, really. Yeah, like the idea was to get kind of the broadest view and not have a bunch of essays kind of on the same theme. Because uh, it's really easy, like especially in game writing, to get a lot of really kind of esoteric and insular sort of essaying, which is definitely, like, there's a lot of good stuff that comes out of that space, but it was really important to us to have this be a book that, theoretically at least, anybody could pick up and read, and not just people who had played, like, Halo but, like, specifically, were you looking for a through line? Because it's best to have, like... I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. And is like, a mission statement for what the book wants to say about the genre. Because the original... Uh, the forward by Clint Hawking, which was good catch, by the way, <laughs> and your introduction, phrase it as, like, a, almost a historic document, historic through line of the genre. Well, I wonder how much of that came to because the original concept which I think wouldn't have been a very good book that I originally came to Patrick with was actually kind of like a history of shooters mm-hmm. um, it, it would essentially be an anthology similar to what we had now but it would kind of be like you know start with Wolfenstein you know end up with Bioshock Infinite or something like that and just kind of go through major games major shooters and kind of structure it that way but then you know we started to think that it'd be better if we got people to pitch games that they were excited about 
and then I think essentially, you know, I'm thinking about this when you talk about like history, because I think there was a certain attempt to to have them all kind of follow a similar trajectory. It was definitely a thing we talked about in terms of like chapter order. One of the one of the possible themes we considered was let's just go through the genre chronologically. Yeah, there's a certain amount of every essay I think proves or attempts to prove in some way why that game is something worthwhile for just anyone to play, you know, to take something away from it. Right. And I wonder if that's, you know, kind of if that was conscious and I think unconscious to a certain extent of sort of the mission statement of what we were doing. Does that make sense? I feel like I just kind of rambled there. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone rambles, and rambling is interesting. (laughs) Uh, But the thing is, you do have a sort of historic quality where every essay tries to place it in, in its own particular context within the historical, but reading them straight through, it isn't a straight timeline. It's more of no. a thematic right. jumping yeah. around to different points in the timeline as it makes sense. For instance, you have you have like uh, the apocalyptic shooters next to each other as they explore different points of that Fallout Three, mm-hmm. called the Pripat and Gears of War, which then gives way to the the World War Two shooters, Red Orchestra, New Order, Brothers in Arms, and it has a thematic line even as it jumps around to different because near the end of it you have you're jumping back to Doom. Yeah. Yeah. That that was very much on purpose, the yeah, ordering true. of the book. You know, we deliberated over kind of like a, almost like you'd you know do a set list or something, sort of what flows into each other well. And it would be weird, I think, if you read an essay about a World War II game was the second essay, and then you read, you know, another one about those at the very end. You know, I mean, um, because also not not only did we have theme and topic to consider, but we also had a huge variety of different styles in terms of the essays mm-hmm. that we had. So that definitely came into play as well in terms of some people had definitely a more academic voice, whereas some people were a lot more conversational and voicey. And neither one of those is, you know, better or worse, but it, they definitely play into how they situate next to each other in a book. And the other thing I want to ask is, did you tell the writers who this audience the book was would be written for or like did you have an envision audience that you tried to deliver on because there is a lot of context giving much more than you'd see on the internet we definitely we definitely did we absolutely yeah. did not want this to be written for people with a game background i mean the the quote unquote like fingers crossed pipe dream ideal was that this would be something that anybody who picks up like a book review would see and be interested in the idea being you don't have to have a background in games or even or, or shooters to be able to take something from this. So that was guiding a lot of the editorial decisions. Yeah, and that was kind of, I mean, you know, originally just saying on on the first round of edits or hopefully even before, I hope before, I can't remember now, but kind of saying, you know, just don't assume everything and don't get too jargony. And that's also, to a degree, kind of personal preference. Um, mm. I don't like the idea of, because it's really easy to do, and this is something that goes back to like university when, again, the literary criticism, and there's uh, this essay, I forget who it was by now, because I'm terrible, but it stuck with me about the idea that you gatekeep 
general populations from engaging with bigger ideas if you get too jargony. Even if, you know, someone who doesn't play very many games and they think, well, I'd like to read about some shooters, you know, I want them to be able to read about a game they've never played and not feel thrown off two paragraphs in because they don't know all these different terms. Yeah, like what FPS means, for example. Like Patrick was saying, I think it's fine to to have that kind of writing, but that kind of writing limits you to... Mm-hmm. It's sort of insular, you know? Like, I can read that and really enjoy it, and, you know, I'm sure most of the people who listen to this podcast could read something very kind of jargony or, you know, sort of more specifically aimed. But I just thought... You know, we, we kind of thought it's better to let everyone in if they want. Mm-hmm. Of course, the audience of this podcast, I don't even think they'd even be able to consciously recognize it as jargon. Well, that I mean, that was the thing that we found, even for us as editors, was how much of the way that we write and are used to writing about games is so completely inaccessible to people who don't like live and breathe this every day on Twitter. It was a very extensive editing process. Yeah, and also one issue with editing, too, is that there's stuff that Patrick and I don't notice on the first go-through. That yeah. And that was one of the things that's good about having two editors is there are some terms that you take for granted as not necessarily being gamey that Patrick might notice or ones that he wouldn't notice that I would notice. Like cutscene, I think, was one of them. I think cutscene, one of us caught a couple of times as a yeah. phrase that just kind of slipped through. And it changed to cinematic. Yeah, right, cinematic oh, sequence, you did notice I think. That. The, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, and sometimes the difficulty in that is sometimes it can be a bit unwieldy. You have to try to maybe use three words when one could have done, but I don't know. The way things read, I think, is a little bit better as well. You, know, you also get writers if you say, you know, don't use immersive or something, or right. RPG. And then you get them actually describing things, and sometimes you end up with more colorful language also as as a result of doing that. So, I don't know. That was our preference, and I think it, for kind of the general aim of the book, I think works for it, hopefully. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that our sneaky agenda was also, like, as per, more or less professional game critics to sort of advance the cause of critical game writing. So it's definitely in our interest as editors to be able to produce a work that people who've never played a video game before can pick up and say, okay, I actually understand at least like 70% of what's going on here. And you chose a wide variety of games, like from big popular blockbuster titles, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, Far Cry 2, Fallout 3, and Greer's of War to like lesser picked up, but big titles like Hayes, Perfect Dark, Kane and Lynch. And then you picked a few that I'd never heard of, like Battle Garega. <laughs> I had never heard of that either until we got that pitch. But uh, among all this, what I, I found interesting is, and I only noticed this because almost every writer mentioned one or the other, is the two games that seem to be like uh, honorary includees, even though they don't have essays dedicated to them, was Spec Ops The Line and Bioshock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those. I mean, those were definitely games that... When we when Reed and I were going through the selection process, we were both kind of like, do we need an essay on Spec Ops? Do we need an essay on Bioshock? And we decided that like we could probably get by with that, even though they are in the critical discourse such important games. 
Well, to be fair, each one has a book dedicated. Exactly. To it yeah, exactly. And and that was self-selecting in a certain sense too, because we didn't. I think we got one or two for Bioshock. I don't even know if we got a specific one for Spec Ops, because I think a lot of people who are pitching thought, you know, it's hard to think of a new angle to take yeah. on those games or to Especially say something with, that with hasn't the book been said. Already having been published on it. Yeah, and you know, even if we did get. Well, I don't know. If if someone had something really new and exciting to say about one of those games, then sure. But there's, it's hard because get these games that kind of get rung through the mill and get talked about so much, you know, it's picked clean by the piranhas. Yeah, really. They're, they're yeah, vultures, as it were. Those games are just you know skeletons now. At the same time, they appear enough that anyone who isn't like well versed gets a feeling these games are important despite not being included. Oh, absolutely, they're absolutely significant games, um, which is why I think they get brought up in almost every essay in the book for some point in comparison or other. I think the Call of Cthulhu one is like the only one that doesn't mention another game. Oh, really? Yeah, I think I think Robert. Uh... No, he mentions, I think he mentions, like, Half-Life mm. and Bio... He does mention Bioshock, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Okay. <laughs> wow, even that one. It's incredible I can remember this, but <laughs> read those a lot of times. So now I'm going back over it and thinking. But that's all as editors, but each of you have an essay unto yourselves in a year. Mm-hmm. I'm an so... essay unto myself. <laughs> no man so is an was... essay read. <laughs> So that was your role and process as the editors, but as writers, what was your role here? As leaders to give examples or just as another person? Oh, you're so sweet. (laughs) 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 We kind of got the kind of crappier end of of that, I think, because we purposely, we knew that we both wanted to write one because, you know, I, I think just editing it, I almost would have been jealous if, you know, if we put this whole thing together and and neither of us got to write something for it. I think Reed and I were both kind of like, well, whatever game doesn't get covered, yeah. we'll just each take an essay on. Yeah, and that's that's why I ended up writing about Modern Warfare. I do find that game really fascinating. And when we kind of assembled the, the list of 13 other essays and we looked at, well, where are two kind of holes we can fill? And, you know, we had kind of the that's when we kind of had a list of sort of the bigger games, you know, stuff like Modern Warfare and Halo. And Weirdly Cup. enough, we didn't get a lot of people who wanted to cover the, like, seriously major shooters. We had a ton of esoteric pitches, but we didn't have a lot for, like, the Call of Duties and Halos. We did have some, but there weren't a ton. Yeah, there was one Halo pitch that was excellent, and I think that was almost got picked, but it was too similar in tone to another one that we had already picked. But yeah, so that's why Patrick and I ended up taking... And, you know, Patrick needs to write about Far Cry 2 in everything he does. So. It is like a compulsion, yeah. Oh, uh, so you're one of those people alongside Ben Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> and Wes Elder. I'll own that, yeah. Well, and Far Cry 2, I think... There's a lot of interesting stuff to say about that. And it it is one of those games, too, that has been picked clean to an extent. But there's, 
I don't know. There's still interesting angles to take on that game. I mean, my take on Far Cry 2 is it's far more interesting to write about than it is to play. And in, <laughs> in the former capacity, there's almost limitless opportunities. So I'm just going to jump all over it. I also found that essay in particular has a good, like, a bringing in for an audience that does might not accept the premise of the collection into the yeah. idea that there is more here and open the door up for some of the later essays that go into specifics. That yeah, was, there was, yeah, that was intentional. When we kind of figured out the order, you know, David Heinemann's uh, Battle Garriga piece, which is the most history-focused, the most historical... Probably the most academic piece that we have, yeah. And then I think he does a good job of kind of setting up what shooters are, why, you know, how they've changed, what they are now, and then Patrick kind of also gives you a good little introduction to uh, what's been going on in games criticism, you know, since 2005 or so, when things start changing. Which, I mean, admittedly, I have a very selfish vested interest in advancing the agenda of game criticism. Got to pay that rent. So, I do, yeah. Don't we all? <laughs> Is there anything more about the collection that you'd like to get out there? Anything I may have missed? I mean, one thing, I, I mean, I know this sounds trite in this setting, but one thing that really honestly does surprise me is just the sheer volume of different perspectives that we got in terms of the angles that people were taking to games. When you say we're going to compile an anthology about shooters, you kind of have it in your head what sorts of games people are going to write about just because there's a quote-unquote scare quotes art, like official video game canon or whatever the hell, but... What surprised me wasn't, like, the games that people chose to write about as meaningful to them, but the things that they derived from them. And that, I think, is the biggest strength of something like this. Because, yeah, everyone, when you ask them about shooters, is going to tell you about Doom, and is going to tell you about Perfect Dark, and is going to tell you about Call of Duty, but you won't necessarily get the same sort of engagement or the same type of engagement that you would get if you were to ask these specific people, which, as as a writer myself, I find fascinating. Yeah, that was, to me, one of the best parts of, of doing this as well, was getting people's opinions about things, especially in ways that I wouldn't have thought about them, and which is, I think, one of the great things about arts criticism in general, is mm -hmm. I, I want to read someone's opinion on something that wouldn't have entered my head because they, you know, grew up differently, come from, you know, have different... Oh, my God, I just got tongue-tied. You know, <laughs> they're different, essentially. They've, you know, grown up differently, lived different lives, and, and read and played and watched different things, and so their perspective is always going to be different than my own. And, um, I mean, I, I know that Michael, and I'm choosing to speak for Reed here as well, is is to sort of advance the whole cause of critical writing as something that can be culturally valuable. And I think that I really do honestly, and not just saying this because I have a book out, but really do honestly believe that long-form writing is the way to do that for critical writing. So I will do literally anything I can to help advance that sinister agenda. Yeah, I'll get behind that as much as I'd love to say I thought Shooter would be a good way to dive bomb the future of games criticism, just burn it to the ground. I do uh, remember those chat conversations. So what if 
It is, and it's almost in some senses a survival mechanism too to show people this: these are the people out there, and this is what they're capable of, of doing. Hopefully, they're good examples of that. I like the stuff that we got, and when they're shrinking venues, bigger venues to get everyone's voices heard, I think it's important to show that this is what's going on with games, that people are taking these things from them and, and interpreting them in these ways. How did you get Clint Hawking to do the forward for the book? Honestly, we asked him. Yeah. Um, that, that was Patrick. I, and, yeah, yeah sorry, I mean, I it. have had communication with him on Twitter just because I'm a... Uh, there's really no way to sound this so that no way to say this so that sound like an asshole. I'm kind of a shooter scholar. I know, I know, I deserve it. I deserve it. I deserve everything you're thinking right now. <laughs> and he is very much involved with the development of the modern shooter in terms of its at least its thematic and narrative and mechanical presentation. So I've been in contact with him over Twitter for a couple of years. So I asked him. I told him, "Here's what we're doing." Here's our goal. He asked for kind of a rundown on some of the things we were going to publish, and we sent him like literal one to two sentence summaries of everything. And he was like, "Yeah, sure." Yeah, we had a that was an idea that came about sort of on. Yeah, that was a that was a joke, wasn't it? It was a joke because I think at first the first thing I said is let's get John Romero to write an introduction, and then we're like, okay, which we did. We did actually ask him for an introduction. We did ask John Romero. No response. No, no response. He can do the next one if he wants to. He'll do shooter um, too. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. No, but then we, when we like made this, kind of just joked about it, and then we thought, well, it would be really cool. And I think you just have to ask a lot of times, and the worst thing that's going to happen is they'll say no. And even if they're rude about it, then who cares? You just go on your merry way. Mm-hmm. So we kind of just made a list of, of people that we'd, you know, would love to have an introduction by, and Clint was uh, very high up on that list. I think it was John Romero because he made Doom, and then we thought Clint Hawking because he's done some great work and he's also yeah, and know, also very made good. the second the second greatest shooter ever made after John Romero's Doom. Yeah, after John <laughs> Romero's Doom, yes. Um, but also, you know, Clint writes good essays, so he does, that's yes. That's I actually cited nice one thing. of his essays in the further reading section of my own essay. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's written some pretty foundational games criticism, too. Yeah. That it's hard to escape the shadow of, in a sense. So, yeah, so Patrick just asked him, and then he was, you know, very gracious enough to... Yeah, he was very amiable. Yeah, that was just very lucky. This is a publication, so there's more here than a simple blog post. For starters, the cover. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where did it come from? Why this? Come on. <laughs> the cover was uh, my wonderful older was brother, he, Scott. Inside job. Is, oh, <laughs> it was an outside job. <laughs> uh, I, I'd love to say that it was like some, you know, mastermind thing, but it was me calling my brother who's a web designer and graphic designer and and saying hey scott if i bought you a case of beer would you make a cover for my book and him saying yes and i was like can you make a gun on the cover and then he gave us that (laughs) and then we played around with it for quite a while and fine-tuned it and 
that that's where it came from. I mean, to be honest, Reed and I were super fortunate to know a like a shitload of super talented people who do things that neither of us can do. Yes. Um, like we had people that we worked with for the layout and for the like the copy editing and for the illustrations and we were just like, "Oh man, this is amazing." neither of us had any idea that these were even things when we set out to, to take this project on, but we learned, yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is it was an incredible learning process, like incredible. I can't stress enough how much I learned about like the self publication process from doing this, like really seriously. And who did the line arts for inside the book for each essay? Uh, that was my extremely talented friend, Paul Sousa who is just a really talented illustrator I've known for a few years, who does not work as a professional illustrator. I keep urging him to change that. But yeah, he was sort of at the very beginning, the idea of doing the ebook. I thought it would be really great to give it something extra. And so right from the beginning, when I, I think I spoke to Patrick, and then when Patrick said he was in, I spoke to Paul, I think the next day, and asked him if he'd be willing to... Uh, take on that amount of work because it was a lot of work for him and then you have just like these little touches that uh like like the focus breaks in the middle of the essays instead of three dots or three bullets <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the little blood spatters at the bottom that show the page number mm -hmm. yeah that's a combination of stuff that we thought would be cool and stuff that uh oscar strick who did the uh yeah, he the did layout. yeah and he came back with that with the blood stains and everything and I mean again I, we we worked with incredibly talented and creative people like I couldn't have even asked for people this good yeah and yeah it was really great to see what Oscar came back with and I think it adds a ton to just I still enjoy just looking at the book because I don't know I, I think that stuff's kind of neat it's like sort of intentionally supposed to be a little bit I, I always thought of a little bit of poking fun at itself to an extent with the, oh, absolutely. And the, the bullet ellipses and especially you know. because the I think the original proof that we looked at the original font for the page numbers was the quake font right yeah yeah which I thought was fantastic but I think we agreed it was a little bit too like yeah okay I get it. I get it I get it it's a book about shooters <laughs> and then of course the, the co back to the cover you have the blood dripping down from the top mm -hmm. with your names embroiled in white, edited mm -hmm. by Reed Carter and Patrick Lindsay. Yeah, like a like a perfect robot ran its finger through the blood and wrote our names. <laughs> <laughs> Font robot. That's probably the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The cover, I you know, I'm, I'm. It's I think testament to the fact that my brother Scott, who did that, is very good at web design when I said, is there any way you can get about, you know, 16 names on a cover and make it not look insane? Make it not look just, you know, really busy and, and awful. And he found a way to do it. He did. Because, you know, that's one thing that I thought would be really cool if we could pull it off was trying to get everyone's name on it just to show, mm -hmm. you know. Well, it really speaks to the nature of the book as well. Like, it's not just that this is a book about game criticism. It's this is a, like, this is a place where all of these people are making themselves known as like actual established writers. Yeah, and it's a little bit, maybe a little bit kumbaya, but I, I think 
there wouldn't be a book if we didn't have all these people. Oh, absolutely. So it feels uncomfortable in a certain extent to even assume responsibility for this project as Patrick and I, you know, as editors, because I didn't write all those essays. You know, it's a lot of people who worked really hard wrote the majority of this book. So it was important to get their names right on the front. I'm Robert Rath. I'm a freelance writer, and I wrote the chapter The Lurking Fear, Firearms in Call of Cthulhu, Dark Corners of the Earth. Hi, I'm Corey Miller. I'm a part-time freelance writer, a full-time call center jockey, <laughs> and I wrote Brothers in Arms, Health Highway, and German Representation in World War II video games. J.V. Gwaltney. I'm a freelance writer. I write for Playboy, Paste, Vice, some other places. And for Shooter, I wrote Gilded Splinters, B.J. Blazkowicz, and The New Order, which is the chapter about Wolfenstein. The new one, not the old one. How did you hear about the project Shooter? I picked up a uh, call for pitches on Twitter. I think Patrick Lindsay put it out. I saw it on, on his timeline. You know, I thought I'd pitch something a little oddball. I figured everyone was going to be pitching Call of Duty and and Halo. It actually turned out no one pitched those because everyone was thinking the exact same thing. So I went with this very obscure game from uh, the the mid two thousands, uh, my college period, which was the first game that I'd uh, I'd ever kind of wanted wanted to think more about because it was so unusual. Funny enough, it was really just I managed to catch the call for pictures on Twitter, and so I thought to myself, oh, it's the something great that I really want to be involved in. Uh, specifically, so general representation in shooting games is something that's been on my mind for a couple of years now. And so I really, I already had that idea just dating in me and I thought, if I'm going to write this, this might be the best kind of avenue to pursue that kind of uh, conversation. I actually pitched the original version of this to another site the piece. It was a bit different back then. But then when Reed and Patrick tweeted about Shooter, when they went on, on Twitter and tweeted about it and announced it, I pitched it to them said, and sent them the whole draft. I didn't read it. Like, I sent them a little pitch and then just sent them the whole piece, and they accepted it. And then we went through about four drafts of it before it was ready for publication. Why did you choose the game you did for your essay? Well, it's it's a game where it's technically a first-person shooter, but you don't have a gun for the first probably three to four hours of gameplay. And all of that time is avoiding being shot rather than shooting. And in, in fact, the game goes downhill a little bit, I feel like, when you pick up a gun. Uh, it's a lot more tense when you're being chased by a mob of shotgun-wielding villagers, which is a terrifying experience when you have no weapons. And it's unusual to be playing a game where we're just normal guys with guns are a a horror enemy that you're afraid of. And uh, also the, the firearm system is very, very unique. You have to keep track of uh, personally in your head how many bullets are in your gun. There is no auto aim. There's no ammo counters, uh, nothing on the screen to tell you how the gun is operating. And when you fire, the bullets go exactly where the gun is pointing, meaning that if you pull the trigger while you're reloading, you could you know, discharge a bullet into the wall or the floor or the ceiling uh, before the reloading animation is finished. So you kind of had to actively manage the guns that you're using, which is very, very different from how uh, how you usually use a gun in a video game. 
Um, well, first of all, I kind of got in touch with, uh, I think it was Reed, said, I've got this idea. I've got a background in history. And I really want to write about, you know, gender representation in games and how we see them. And it's quite broad. And he said, right, I like the idea. Can you narrow it down to something more specific? So I said, okay, leave it with me. I'll go away. i have a think. Have a look at what my options are. So I was looking at a raft of World War II shooter games. And Brothers and Arms Hell's Highway is funny because as a game, I'm not actually particularly fond of it. But because it's so character-based with regards to just cast characters on the Allied side, it kind of brought up a great way to contrast how we view the Allies and the people we engage with on that side and how little is really taught or shown in games on the German side. So it was really the character-based angle that really uh, lent itself well for the essay. Well, I, I remember seeing a trailer for Wolfenstein about a year before it came out. I just wasn't impressed with it. But to be fair, it's really hard, I think, for first-person shooters to seem impressive in trailers just because they all kind of look the same. You have to really like get your hands on it and play it and see how it feels before you know you can you can really make any like accurate judgments or even get like an accurate snapshot of it. So when it came out, I picked it up on a whim because I had heard such great stuff about it. And then I played through it, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed it. It was sad story, but it wasn't really gritty. It felt appropriately sad, and it was moving in points. And it was just a great story that happened to have shooting as an integral part of it, and not the other way around, which is what a bunch of shooters do. They throw in, they throw in a story to go alongside the shooting, but it felt like that wasn't the case with Wolfenstein. How did you want to approach the game in your essay? Like, from what angle? Well, I, I approached it from the angle of whereas guns are, are usually a tool in a power fantasy in games, there's something that empowers the player. In uh, Dark Corners of the Earth, you, the guns constantly make you nervous, uh, not only because you could technically misfire them or you could run out of bullets you know, when a monster is charging you, and also you know, it's, it's, a, it's a Lovecraftian game, so there's a sanity mechanic. And if your sanity drops low enough, you will kill yourself with your own weapon. And I just thought that was fascinating, the, the way that you could be afraid that your character was going to separate from you, the player, and finish himself off with his own weapon. So I, I'm, I approached it in the guns being a central element of the horror, that they're a little unreliable and also, if you fire, you just draw every enemy straight towards you at any time. And it's, it's usually tactically the wrong decision. Generally, you're firing guns and then you're running away so that you don't get swarmed. Well, like I said, uh, it's been something on my mind for a while. I, quite int- I think it's really more of an offshoot of kind of the work I do with uh, Irish representation in video games. At least that's what I'd do if I had more time uh, to write. But I, I like personally, I, um, you know, I moved around quite a lot when I was young. I moved to Spain when I was nine, so I was very aware of how, you know, you, people can sometimes not fit in and what it means to be, say, a foreigner in a in a new place and how people view you, and all those preconceived ideas and notions attached to nationality. So with the with the essay. I really wanted to dig into the image we've built around 
Germans uh, as a whole with regards to the war and how you know we view our part uh, on one side and we relegate them to this whole just kind of mundane picture of, well, they were the bad guys. Uh, they weren't really people. We had the fight and we had the win. And um, so that was that was really the main thrust there. I wanted to write about the game in the context of the history of first-person shooters. Wolfenstein is, the new one is an interesting game because it combines like uh, old shooters, like the arcade sort of movement of Doom and the original Wolfenstein and Hexen and some other stuff. Like you're moving really fast. You can carry a ridiculous amount of weapons as opposed to how they do in uh, Halo and Call of Duty where you can only hold like a rifle and a, and a pistol at one time. There is health and there is a regenerating part to it, but it's only 20 points at a time. So it's a lot more like the 100 to zero, you know, health bar of uh, older first person shooters. There's also sort of the new first person shooter in it as well. The RPG light elements that you see in games like Far Cry with the perk system. Like if you kill enough enemies with knives, then BJ can carry more knives. So it's the intersection. I think, ultimately, of new first-person shooters and old-person shooters wrapped up in the context of the story context of B.J. Blazkowicz, sort of this old soldier who's waking up in a new world and trying to figure out how to handle uh, dealing with this new world, and he doesn't handle it well. And I think that's part of the reason it's so fascinating, but that's, that's what makes the game work for me. It's sort of about the clash of old and new, both on the thematic level and a mechanics level. Can you explain the process from writing to publishing of this essay? Yes, I wrote a pitch and sent it off, and it took a couple of months before I got an email saying that I'd been accepted into it. And uh, then I, I wrote the first draft. I got a few directives, but not that many, which is one of the reasons, by the way, I think the book has a, a really fascinating range of tones and voices because we're pretty much, you know, left to do what we will, and then uh, then the editing brought it all into line. So then we, we got comments back, we rewrote, or, or changed a few things, and then it, then it came out. And I was absolutely floored when I got the proofs and saw how amazing the art was and, and the layout, and just the book looks gorgeous. Uh, Brian, the problem well, lots and lots of draft edits. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's... I was very aware that this is, you know, quite a um, sensitive issue uh, to kind of come up against and bring to the editors. That the editors were great. Uh, Reed and Patrick both really, um, really helped me kind of mold the message I was trying to say. And say what needed to be said without kind of straying into areas that, you know, you need to lend the right amount of respect to the subject, I think. So... There was a lot of kind of just digging into the more personal uh, angle, trying to just, the main thrust was trying to chisel out these characters as as people who were thrust into extraordinary circumstances along with the Allies. And so you, you had to toe the line between acknowledging that these were ordinary people, but also not shying away from the fact that terrible things were perpetrated you know, during the war that uh, shouldn't be glossed over or shouldn't be ignored. So, um, no, I was definitely glad to have two editors there to kind of steer the conversation, you know, properly, uh, very succinctly. 
just to make sure the right amount of levity was brought to it. Sure, sure. Uh, we, like I said earlier, I pitched it to them and pretty much the rough draft was complete and the majority of that rough draft is still there, but we spent at least three or four drafts trying to Breed and Patrick and I working on a Google document, just trying to get it right, uh, get the specifics right, to make it open to anybody, not just like gamers. So we had to deal with my terminology. We had to get rid of like the gaming specific terms, I think, or at least explain them. So yeah, it was about four drafts of that. And now the fluff question. Patrick, you first. All right. What is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, that's such a terrible question, and I know that you know it is. <laughs> um, oh, I honestly don't know. And the really terrible thing is if you were to pressure me and to make me answer, I know I would say Doom, even though that's the most predictable thing I could say right now. <laughs> I think that Doom is definitely one of the best video games I've ever played. Not necessarily my favorite, but definitely one of the best. That said, I'm also playing replaying Halo again for the first time in like 10 years and insanely enjoying that. But I also enjoy non-violent games like Kerbal Space Program, which I logged way too many hundreds of hours in. And Crusader Kings 2, which isn't exactly non-violent, but at least violent ostensibly game. so. It's, it's more sneakily violent, I guess I'll say. Textually violent. Yeah, it is textually violent. And you read? That's... I don't know. That's hard. I think I've said before that, you know, an easy answer is probably Doom is maybe my favorite shooter. Modern Warfare is up there as a favorite shooter as well. But favorite video games is, I mean, you can just do the easy, easiest answer and say, like, Super Mario Brothers 3 is a game I've never been tired of playing. But I don't know. I think for some reason, and as awful as it can be, I think Metal Gear Solid, the PlayStation 1 game, is the game that kind of is probably the reason I kept playing video games. I can absolutely see that on so many levels, actually. Especially when I was about 12. Yeah. It was yeah. very, it was everything I didn't think that you you could do in video games. That you could talk about history and psychology. and You could and learn also, what SOP meant. That's right. It means standard operating procedure. That's right. <laughs> That's very true. I learned about nuclear weapons, and there's a guy who uh, poops his pants. That that's and, that's key, yeah. And you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Also, railguns don't use propellants. That's a key piece of information. That's true. I learned about the the problem with uh, nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. I learned about the Gulf War. I learned about. All sorts of things. We could be here all day. I mean, I learned what otaku meant. That's true. <laughs> and with that... I mean, honestly, we could... Reed and I could write a whole separate <laughs> ebook, Things I Learned from Metal Gear Solid. Things I Learned from Metal Gear Solid. This would be under humor, right? I don't know uh, what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite video game of all time? Ooh. Gosh, I'm terrible at picking favorites, to be honest. It, um, I would say it's probably a tie between something like Spec Ops The Line, which is just so deeply fascinating, and Journey. Journey, I think, would probably probably take the top spot as, as just a, a deep emotional experience rather than... 
I don't know. It's just it's so crafted to make you feel a certain way. And I, I really admire that. And I, I like the feeling that it gives me when I'm playing. So I think it's not necessarily the most fun game, but I I think that's that's my favorite because it's a good balance of, of how it makes you feel versus just admiring the artistry of it. <laughs> favorite video game of all time, it has to be Demon Souls. Yeah. I mean, it's it's wonderful. I love it. I love everything about it. Well, most 90% of it. A lot of people, you know, they bring up the classics, but I think after all these years, if you haven't played a game that's better than Sonic the Hedgehog, what does that say about video games? This is tough. I, it's actually two. It's actually two because I can never pick between one of them. Between them, uh, the first one is Half Life, and I played that when I was nine years old, and it was just kind of transformative for me. It's the first game that made me go, "Oh man, this is amazing!" Just with how everything occurs, sort of naturally. There's not story isn't sidelined into cutscenes. You're just part of it. You're part of the story. You're moving through it. Uh, you're interacting with the game pretty much the entire time in interesting, dynamic ways. And then, actually, before I, I, I went up to college, I was a huge gamer, or I played a, played a lot of games, but then I stopped right before I went. And then during my uh, junior year, my brother got me a copy of Mass Effect 2 because he knew I loved space operas and thought, hey, maybe, maybe you'd pick this. And then I played it, and it was like catching up on everything I'd missed in games. Like, oh, man, everything's... This is, quote-unquote, cinematic. There's branching paths. You know, there's actually time dedicated to fleshing out story, uh, to fleshing out characters, to making you care about these people. And so it was just it was just amazing. And I can't really pick between those two because they were just part of two uh, different points in my life when I was different people, but uh, they were very important to me. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Reed, for coming on. Thank, thank you, you so much very for much. humoring us. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Eric. I appreciate it. Very mu- yeah, very much appreciated. Also, right, I'm good. going to obligatorily remind you all to buy Shooter at ShooterBook.com. You can find the link in the show notes. It is $5 plus whatever you feel like adding for your own appreciation. Good work, Patrick. That's literally what you pay me for. And thank you to Robert Rath, Corey Milne, and Jevy Gwaltney for making the time. You can find their work by Googling their names and following the links in the show notes to all the things we talked about. I'm also on Twitter at Han Freakin' Solo. That's basically anything I do will find itself routed through there, so that's a good place to check. And uh, uh, likewise for me. Uh, at Reed McCarter, Reed with an I. I was about to say, likewise for you, so you're also at Hans Freaking Solo on Twitter? <laughs> You've just yeah. uncovered the biggest conspiracy. <laughs> of I phone Patrick and I tell him a, a good thing to post in 140 characters or less. <laughs> and he, he tweets it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't answer. Reed, oh, Reed yeah. McCar- at Reed McCarter is just really my ebooks account. <laughs> this has all been a very clever AI voice impersonation this whole time. Fitter, stronger, happier. What's wrong, Dave? <laughs> Don't do that, Dave. This just keeps getting better. <laughs> and you can and please if you enjoyed this podcast and many of our other 
lovely projects continuously going up on critical distance. Consider supporting our Patreon, and don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Thank you. It's been a blast. <laughs>